I'm Corey. I've been coming here for well, seven years, my second time up here. And oh, there we go. Um, so most of the time when we preach uh, here at the Hallows, we preach out of just one text. Uh, last week was a little bit different. Uh, George um, kind of did it a little bit differently. And today is also going to be a little bit different. Um, just to give you all kind of a roadmap. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 2 uh, with a passage known as Hannah's Song. And then we're going to go to Luke 1, and that'll be Mary's Magnificat. Um, and that's the Advent part of the sermon today. And if you wonder why it's called the Magnificat, it's, uh, it comes from the first word of the, the song in Latin. And it basically just means it's a song of praise. Um, after that, we're going to go spend some time in Kings, and then we're going to hit up a psalm, and we'll finish up back in Luke. So it's kind of all over the place today. Uh, so between Hannah's song and then the Magnificat and the psalm, we basically have three songs today. Uh, which I thought was really fitting for joy. Um, and I was talking a few weeks ago with my friend Alexis, and he was like, well, you should just start by singing them. So here we go. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm just going to hope my voice holds out through the hole. <laughs> All right, uh, so Hannah's song. Uh, we'll start with that. Uh, Hannah's song, this is coming at the end of the time of the judges. Uh, so Israel had no king, and it's pretty much chaos. Uh, there's a man named Elkanah, and he has two wives, uh, Hannah and Penaniah. And any time in the Bible that someone has two wives, it causes trouble. I, I guess probably real life, too. But yeah, uh, <laughs> here the trouble is that Hannah is barren, and Penaniah is basically tormenting her for it uh, repeatedly. And each year they go up, and they offer a sacrifice to God. Right, and Hannah is sad about being barren and getting tormented for it. Uh, so she goes and she makes a vow to God that if God would just grant her a son, then she will give her son to God. All right, so we read in 1 Samuel 1.11, making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. Right, so that hair not cutting thing, it's kind of strange, uh, but that's a Nazarite vow. Right? It's something that sets him apart for service to God. Right? And you can read about that at number six if you want to, but just kind of moving on. She's praying this. Uh, the priest at the tabernacle, Eli, he's watching her, and he's so undiscerning that he can't recognize prayer. Right? Yeah, he thinks that she's drunk, and she's like, no, I'm not drunk. That's not what's happening here. I'm in anguish, and I'm praying, and you probably just made it worse. So that Eli <laughs> instead uh, gives her this blessing and says, like, go in peace, and may God grant your request. And then Hannah responds in uh, verse 18, may, may your servant find favor with you, she replied. And then Hannah went on her way, and she ate, and she no longer looked despondent. And so God does grant her, requ her request, and soon she gives birth to Samuel. Right, and then she fulfills her vow, and she brings him to serve the Lord at the tabernacle. And that is when she prays this song. Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are closed with strength. 
Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. All right, so I want you all to notice something interesting. All right, she starts off talking about herself personally, right? She's talking about her enemies and boasting proudly, and you can kind of like see, like, yeah, that's okay, that's Penaniah that she's thinking about, like the rival wife. But then it kind of just grows in scope, right? She starts talking about life and death and poverty and wealth and warriors and the feeble being strengthened. Right? And then she talks about the poor being set on thrones and how the whole world belongs to God and no one can oppose his will and how he thunders in the heavens. And then finally it ends with God exalts the king and his anointed. Right? His anointed. And anointed means, like the, the literal word in Hebrew is like Messiah, like Mashiach. Or, uh, I don't actually know how to pronounce it. Anyways, um, or in Greek, that's his Christ. Right? But recall the context, okay? God answered her, her prayer for a child. And that's great, like that's good news for her, but why is that personal event being described in cosmic terms, right? I think the reason is because First and Second Samuel, the whole book or pair of books, it's not trying to tell us the story about a random Israelite family, but it's actually telling a larger story, a story of the whole people through whom God is doing something in history, right? And this song coming in at the beginning of the set of books is setting up all the major themes for First and Second Samuel, right? It's setting up themes of God's judgment, of the reversal of fortunes at God's hand, you know, and of kingship. And this song, you know, after this song, right, the, the story continues, and we start seeing alternating stories between Samuel on one hand and Eli and his sons on the other. Right, so Eli, well, Eli's sons, they steal from the offerings that people were giving to God, right? And then, you know, they get, they get fat off of him, and Eli literally dies falling out of his chair because he's old and fat, right? <laughs> For a while, Samuel then becomes prophet, and he's the judge of the people, but after him, Saul becomes king. And Saul is, like, tall and impressive and proud, you know, like, taller than me. <laughs> and, and then he gets shown up by David, who is a humble shepherd boy who relies on God and goes and defeats a boasting giant. That's the whole Goliath story, right? So Saul then falls from power, and David is lifted up to the throne. And behind all of it is the work of God, right? So as Hannah says, he will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed, right? Her song is pointing forward to all of this throughout the whole book. All right, and the high, the high point of the whole set of books is in 2 Samuel 7, where God makes a covenant with David, saying, 
All right, so now this is what you were to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Okay, so when you look at the whole set of books, First and Second Samuel, and all the major themes, they're here in this little poem that comes from the mouth of a humbled woman who turns to God in the middle of her torment and receives a child. Right, and her joy in what God does for her becomes this poetic summary of everything that God is doing in history for all of his people, and especially what he's doing with his anointed king. So that's Hannah's song, and that's First and Second Samuel, kind of at large. When Luke starts to write his account of the gospel in the New Testament, right, he begins by modeling the story he's telling on the pattern of Hannah and Samuel. Right? He tells the story of another barren woman, Elizabeth, who gives birth to another prophet, John. Right? And John's father is a priest, Zechariah. And while Zechariah isn't wicked like Eli, he's still not quite as discerning as he should be. Right? He doesn't pick up on what God is doing at first. And there's a lot of other subtle similarities that you know, we don't really have time for. But when the angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary... I want you all to watch how Luke starts to reuse some of the same words as Hannah's story. Right? Words like servant, words like favor. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. All right, so the angel tells her that this is the promised heir. Her son is going to be the promised heir to the Davidic throne. All right, that's another link back to, you know, First and Second Samuel. And there's a lot more links that we could point to, especially when we get to the Magnificat itself, which I promise we're going to get there in a minute. <laughs> uh, but the point here is that Luke is picking up these threads in history, right? Threads that God had been weaving together, you know, and he's reusing the words that were used earlier in God's word to describe it, right? And he's telling us about this new thing that God is doing and how it's a continuation of the old things that God has been doing from of old, all right, so the story continues. Angel gave Mary a sign, right, that her cousin Elizabeth, who is quite old, right, is going to be pregnant. So Mary quickly goes to see Elizabeth, and then when she gets there, she greets her, and we get this scene. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, 
When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. All right, so this is a really happy moment, right? Elizabeth is speaking prophetically in the Holy Spirit, and she's like, Mary, you are blessed, and Jesus, you're going to be blessed, right? And there's a lot more here in this section that we're going to come back to, but this is the context where Mary sings her Magnificat. And so I'll go ahead and read that now. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. All right, so this song also starts with Mary rejoicing over what God did for her individually. And then it starts to transition, right? It transitions to God's response to the humble and the proud and his judgment on wicked rulers and his exaltation of the lowly, right? And it turns to his treatment of the poor and the rich, and it ends mentioning how God remembers and has mercy on his servant Israel. Right? This is a lot of the same themes, the same movement from what God does individually to what God is doing corporately for his people as a whole. Right? And if you read it from Gre in Greek, you'll see there's a bunch of shared vocabulary that kind of ties this back to Hannah's song and to Samuel. Right, so why? Why am I bringing all this up? I bring up all these connections. All right, so we have four accounts of the gospel. Right? Matthew, Mark, and John all chose different ways to tell the same story. But Luke chose this way. Right? And kind of more strongly, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to choose this way of telling the story. All right? And so I think we need to respect the way that each tells the story and the unique emphases of each. All right? So the question that I think we all should have is what is Luke doing and making all these connections? And here's what I think he's doing. So first and second Samuel, we're building toward the rise of King David, right? There's this contrast between Saul, you know, King Saul and King David, right? And we see that Israel didn't just need any king, but rather they needed a humble and faithful king like David. Right, but then when you, when you turn to second Samuel, you see that even David fails at times. So then it starts to point past David to the son of David, right? And God says to him, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, right? And so then what does the angel say to Mary? He says, he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Right, so Luke is showing us that Jesus does more than fulfill the promise of a king. He fulfills the character of the, the humble king that Israel really needed. Jesus is the king that David on his best days was pointing to. Right? David was humble and faithful, but Jesus, existing in the form of God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is the gospel, right? It's not abstractly just some good news, but it's very specifically the good news of the birth of a king, a king who changes everything, right? who brings God's salvation. And Jesus is the Christ, right? And that Christ, it's not a last name, it's the Messiah, it's the anointed king who sits on the eternal throne of David, and all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. So as Luke is telling his account, the gospel of Jesus, he's reusing the same themes and the same images and the same words from the story of Israel's great former king, and he's doing it to show that it's the same God who once lifted up the faithful and the lowly and brought down the wicked and the proud still does so. Right? And that this God came as a man, not to be born in a palace to a life of luxury, rather to be humbly born in a manger, and to suffer and die and rise again, and then enter into his glory. So, when the angel arrives and announces to Mary, you know, that she's going to give birth to this promised king, and in faith, she goes and sees the sign that Elizabeth, the barren old woman, is six months pregnant. It makes a lot of sense for Mary to sing a song of praise that reflects the cosmic significance of the arrival of the Messiah. Right? Fulfilling the promise to Abraham that Abraham and his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. But if this is news just about the fate of Israel and all the nations, right? And I think there's something strange about what Mary says. Because it makes sense for it to be cosmic, right? We just covered that. But she says that all generations will call her blessed. And the mighty one has done great things for me. Elizabeth tells her, blessed are you among women. Or we actually have the reverse question of what we had with Hannah, right? If the Messiah was for the whole world, then what does that have to do with Mary individually? But like, we can all rejoice. Like, we can all rejoice in what, what God has done for us, right? And she, I guess, would be included in that. But is there anything special for her? Now, I think it's easy for us to psychologize Mary, right? I mean, well, you know, she's a young woman, and she's probably a teenager, right? She got pregnant, right? We think there's probably some cultural shaming going on there. Right? With Hannah, I mean, there's definitely shame, right? She had Penaniah taunting her, right? It's right there in the text, you know, Hannah was crying, she won't eat, right? Does Mary suffer the same kind of taunting? I mean, maybe, probably, right? But Luke doesn't actually record that, right? So where, where in Luke does it say that anybody taunted Mary or put her to shame? Matthew, in his gospel, he records that Joseph was thinking about a quiet divorce, not wanting to disgrace her publicly. That's Matthew 1.19. But the angel warns him, and Joseph doesn't even disgrace her privately, like at all. So when Luke is carefully crafting the story, 
He never mentions anyone accusing Mary. For Elizabeth, on the other hand, it says in verse 25 that, that God took away her disgrace. Right? So both Hannah and Elizabeth, God takes them out of the status, kind of being uh, you know, barrenness, and you know, gives them children. So they go from kind of like a low position to you know, good, right? They had kids. Yay, right? With Mary, she's already in an acceptable state. Like betrothed and a virgin, this is a, like acceptable combination, right? But then God gets her pregnant, right? So what exactly did God do for her individually? <clears throat> so I think the key is in what Luke actually does tell us about Mary, right? In the next chapter, when they bring Jesus to the temple, Mary and Joseph are going to offer two birds, right? And if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, that means they are dirt poor, okay? And the other thing is that Mary, twice, once to the angel, and then once in her song, calls herself a servant. And that's not a lightweight word, right? Like, you could also translate it as female slave, so she's a poor woman at the bottom of the Greco-Roman social ladder. But she has faith that the Lord will fulfill what he has spoken to her. Right? In both Samuel and Luke, we've talked about how God loves to lift up the humble. You know, the humble and the lowly who put their faith in him. And that's exactly what he does for Mary. But I think if we really want to understand how God does it, then we need to go back again to the Old Testament. Right. Give me a sec. I was hoping my voice would, would last. Okay. So God goes and he makes his covenant with David to give him a son who will build a temple, right? And we know that eventually... <clears throat> that's Jesus. But in the short term, David has Solomon, right? And Solomon builds a temple, and he's hyperbolically wise, right? God, God gives him success and a long life and wealth, and he is like the wisest man that ever lived, ever. Um, Solomon becomes an image of the coming Messiah, right? And Solomon, unfortunately, has fallen in a lot of ways, and we're not really going to talk too much about it, but we read about him in 1 Kings, and I think there's a really interesting detail that's going to help us make sense of what happens with Mary. So 1 Kings 2.19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. The king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, and sat down on his throne, and had a throne placed for the king's mother. So she sat down at his right hand. All right, so Bathsheba is Solomon's mother, right? And yes, it's that Bathsheba, right, if you know what I mean. Uh, he places Bathsheba at his right hand. And the right hand imagery is a big deal all over the New Testament, right? in Acts, and in Romans, and Ephesians, and Colossians, and Hebrews, and 1 Peter, it says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, right? And so in Matthew 20, you know, the sons of Zebedee's mom, they come up to Jesus, or she comes up to Jesus and says, like, hey, can my son sit on your right and left, right? This right hand image is an image of honor and power, Right? So Bathsheba is put on a throne at Solomon's right hand in this place of honor and proximity to the king. Right? She's part of the king's council. She's in his court. Right? That's a position of political power and authority. And it's important to remember that Solomon, who, who is Solomon a pattern for? Right? Bathsheba is sitting at the right hand of the image of the Messiah. 
right? And it seems like she's not the last queen mother to do that. So in 1 Kings 14, 21, now Rehoboam, Solomon's son, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city where the Lord had chosen from all the tribes to put his name. Rehoboam's mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And in the next generation, in the 18th year of kings, Israel's king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. And again, in the 20th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the Lord's sight, as his ancestor David had done. He banished the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols that his ancestors had made. He also removed his grandmother Makkah from being queen mother, because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Asa chopped down her obscene image and burned it in the Kidron Valley. I think this one is really interesting because it's not his mom, it's his grandma, right? And then he actually removes her from the role of queen mother. And I think that makes it clear that this is, like, this is a real political role because you can't remove someone from just being your ancestor, right? She's getting taken out of the queen mother because of her idolatry. And this continues in each generation, right? A few kings later, we get Athaliah, who is another interesting case. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, granddaughter of Israel's king Omri. Right, so this Athaliah becomes queen mother, and then her son dies in battle about a year later. And then check this. When Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate the royal heirs. Jehoshaphat, who was King Jehoram's daughter and Ahaziah's sister, secretly rescued Joash, son of Ahaziah, from among the king's sons who were being killed, and put him and the one who nursed him in a bedroom. So he was hidden from Athaliah and was not killed. Joash was hiding with her, uh, with her in the Lord's temple six years, while Athaliah reigned over the land. All right, so apparently this queen mother has enough power to stage a coup and take over the nation for like six years. All right, that's not the kind of thing that an empty figurehead does. Right? But eventually Joash grows up, right? And they retake the throne. Joash ascends to the throne. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king. He reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah. She was from Beersheba. And apparently, a coup from one bad queen mother doesn't destroy the role, right? Joash picks right back up, and his mother is named. And it continues straight on down the line. There's a dozen more of these, and we're just going to skip the rest of them for time. Because right? it goes all the way down to the very last Judean king before the exile. In 2 Kings 24:18, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. For the entire Davidic monarchy in 1 and 2 Kings, there was only one, one Judean king who doesn't have his mother recorded. It's Ahaz in 2 Kings 16. Right? But despite this incredible consistency on the Davidic line for the southern king of Judah, we do not see this pattern happening at all in the northern kingdom. So why is that? There's two reasons that I think. The first is that this is the line of the promise. God promised an eternal heir to David, right? But he also promised an offspring to Abraham. And then going all the way back, he promised in Genesis 3 to the woman that she would have an offspring who would crush the serpent's head, right? Way back in the garden, so this pattern of highlighting the mothers of the Davidic line is connecting us back to the original promise in Eden. 
right? The Davidic king is the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head, right? But also, I think it's clear that this is a real position of authority, right? Athalia stages a coup, Asa deposes his grandmother. These things don't make sense if this isn't a position of authority in the kingdom of Judah. So, what do we make of all this, right? With David and Solomon and all the rest of the kings of Judah, they were fallen, but their position still pointed to the coming king, right? The king of whom God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When Jesus comes, he fulfills that pattern and he sets up his kingdom, right? And if we see, if what we saw in First and Second Kings is the pattern pointing at Jesus's kingdom, then who is sitting at Jesus's right hand in the kingdom? His mother. And what is it that Elizabeth said to Mary? How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This poor servant girl from Nazareth has become the queen mother of God's kingdom. And as Elizabeth says under the Holy Spirit, blessed are you among women. Before we stop here, I think there's one more passage that's going to set us up. It's Psalm 45. Right. So in general, the section headers in your Bible, right, the, the little title parts, they're not part of the original text, which is why if you change translations or get a different you know, copy, they might have moved. Right? But in the Psalms, those headers are actually from the original text. And this psalm is titled a love psalm. Right? And we're only going to read a part of it. So Psalm 45, picking up in verse 6, Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. And it's worth noting that this oil of joy stuff is used about Jesus in Hebrews 1. Myrrh, aloes, and kasha, I don't know how to say that, perfume, <laughs> perfume all your garments. Uh, from ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. Kings as daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. So there it is again, the queen at the right hand of the king. But this psalm is interesting. Remember, it's a love song, right? And starting in verse 10, the psalmist is going to turn, and he's going to start to address this woman called daughter. Listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Bow down to him, for he is your lord. The daughter of Tyre, the wealthy people, will seek your favor with gifts. In her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious, her clothing embroidered with gold. In colorful garments, she is led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions, are brought to you. They are led with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. Your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. All right, so this daughter clearly isn't the mother of the king. She's a bride. All right, so the, the king will desire your beauty. That's, that's not mom language, right? And then there's this parade of people leading this daughter into the king's palace. All right, this is a royal wedding procession that's happening. So what do we make of this? All right? Is the, the queen the mother, or is the queen the bride? Who is it who's actually sitting at the right hand, right? 
Before you get too confused, just say like, ah, it's a contradiction, and just throw the Bible away. It's not inspired or something like that. Uh, let's pause and let's consider, who is the bride of Christ? Isn't it the church? Right? It is the church. Paul makes it really clear in Ephesians. like, The bride of Christ is the church. And that is how both of these strands fit together. Right? What else does Elizabeth say about Mary? Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. When God came as a man, Mary became the first person to put her faith in the incarnate Christ. And that kind of makes her like the first person in the church, right? And like when you go to Acts, right, and they're talking about the early church, she's there. It's, it's Acts 1.14 if you want to look it up in your own time, right? So Mary, she's the mother of God. And then as a human, she's a daughter of God. And then as part of the church, she's the bride of God. Now think about that. When God entered into history, he came first to a humble, poor girl from a podunk town called Nazareth. And he looked with favor upon her. And he exalted her up in his kingdom, seated next to him on his throne. So that all generations will call her blessed because the mighty one has done great things for her. And that is why Mary is rejoicing. So, what does that matter for us? Right? I mean, we could pretty cynically say, like, eh, I mean, you know, it's great for Mary, but what about, what about me? Like you guys, right? Like, none of you are Mary. <laughs> My voice. <laughs> okay. Uh, to answer that, I think there's, um, there's this confusing passage in Luke that uh, we should turn to. And it's Luke 8, Luke 8, 19 to 21. And his mother and brothers came to him, this is Jesus, but they could not meet with him because of the crowd. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. So is Jesus rejecting his mom? No, right? Did Mary hear and do the word of God? Yes. Right? This, we just covered all of that, right? Elizabeth pretty much straight says it. She did, right? So this isn't a rejection of his family. Rather, it's an invitation to anyone who, like Mary, would hear and do the word of God. And so when we think about who Mary was, poor, an outsider, a woman, at the bottom of the social ladder, right? and that means that no matter how small you are, no matter if you work a dead-end job, or if you're dirt poor, or you're unattractive, or you're weak, or you're sick, or you're disabled, or you're impaired, or you just don't have many friends, or if you come from a tough family, or if you've been estranged from your family, or if you, you've been trying to have a family and you can't, right? Or if you come from another country, or if you can't go back to your country, maybe your country doesn't exist anymore. If you've been down on your luck, or if you honestly just don't think you've ever had any luck to begin with, then you can be invited in, right? Because it's the humble and the poor and the lowly and the hungry and the weak and the anguished, the weeping, who turn to God and place their faith on him. And he loves to lift them up. 
so that they can cry out, that my heart rejoices in the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Right? And so if life has brought you to that place, then turn to God and put your faith in him and offer yourself to God as a servant to hear his word and to do it. And then in his timing, he will lift you up and seat you with him and you will find joy everlasting. Right? Jake read earlier, um, at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In Revelation, he speaks to those who remain faithful to him. This is he, this is Jesus. Uh, right? To those who hear and do his word. And he says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.6, that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, right? So while Mary had faith in Christ and she offered herself as a servant and was exalted to the right hand of Jesus in the kingdom, there's also a place there for us if we're faithful to him. So let's turn back to our our Advent theme of joy, right? If, If you're not feeling the joy these days and if you want God to lift you up so you can rejoice like Mary, I suggest that you humbly offer yourself to him as a servant, right, to hear and do his word and to wait for him. As Jesus says in Luke 14, 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Or as Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's like one word different. <laughs> Or as James says in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Or maybe my favorite of the bunch, 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. And with that, let's pray.